0: I ask that we would sing that hymn, not just because it's a familiar hymn that you may like to sing, but because it expresses the thought of the unity of the people of God being bound together as a people with obligations to one another, with a sense of the commonality of Christ living in each other. That is a good background for the text I'm going to read today in Matthew chapter 18. I told you when we were last looking at this, as I dealt with the beginning of this chapter 18 of Matthew, that this whole chapter is about the, the life of those who are disciples as they live it towards each other, uh, having a childlike spirit towards each other, a humility. We'll see as we go further on a sense of forgiveness to one another. We've come up against a portion of Scripture that is most important for the church. We need to hear this passage, and so much so that today I'm dealing only with the first verse of the passage I'm going to read, and then next week I'll try to deal with the remainder of it. But I will read verses 15 through 20 of Matthew 18. Give your attention to Jesus' own words here as He speaks to His church. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church." And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, There I am with them. May God be the one who speaks clearly through his own word this morning. How would you react if I told you that your local pharmacy has on its shelves a medicine which will cure most forms of leukemia? Not only does it have this medicine, but it's not even prescription. You can buy it over the counter, and it's not that expensive. But millions of people either never hear about this medicine, or when they do hear about it, they shrug their shoulders and say, in effect, well, if that is the cure, I'd rather have leukemia. Now, wouldn't that be absurd? how would we explain the virtual non-use of a wonder cure that was readily available? Well, I think you know that my image about this particular medication is fictional. There is no real medicine I know of in the drugstore that will cure leukemia. But I can promise you There is a spiritual equivalent of what I've just described present here in Matthew 18 and verse 15. There is no more important single verse in the Bible about Christian relationships than Matthew 18, 15. I'll say that again. There is no more important single verse in the Bible than Matthew 18, 15, when we're dealing with the subject of relationships between Christians. Every psychology book written on the planet in the last 50 years does not contain any more powerful cure-all for personal relationships than these words of Christ, if they were taken hold of and obeyed and followed, which they usually are not. Now listen again, because every word Jesus said in this one verse is vital, I believe. If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. This is a prescription that would bring healing to Christian marriages, family divisions, church splits, and many other kinds of broken relations if people would humble themselves and obey this command. Now, the text goes on, as I said before I read it. Verses 16 through 20 are related, but they expand into a further dimension with basic principles of church discipline. And I want to look at that next time, God willing. Today I want to stay with this one verse because it's that important. In the preceding paragraph, which we've not spoken directly about, beginning at verse 10 through 14, you see there, if you glance at it, the parable Jesus told about the lost sheep, a flock of 100, one sheep wanders off somehow or becomes separated, and he talks about the shepherd valuing that sheep, wanting to go after it and reunite it with the flock. He's not just going to say, oh, well, we lose some, some of the time. Uh, Just write that off. No, he goes after it, and when he finds it, he rejoices in the ability to restore it. Well, there is a line of context from that parable to these words, because these words are about restoring someone who, in some manner, at least, is at odds with the body of Christ. You know, I'm sure many of you are well aware of the career and the different uh, radio and other ministries uh, centering around Dr. James Dobson and the phenomenon of his career as a Christian psychologist. It all really began back in 1970 with a book Dr. Dobson wrote called Dare to Discipline. It was really quite a revolutionary-sounding book when it came out in the end of the 1960s with all of the permissiveness that not only characterized culture in general at that time, but the whole ideas about child raising that were in our society, which was was basically rather permissive, all of the things that were being written at that time. And Dobson came along with a biblical approach and said, you need to dare to have some discipline. It's not as important to be your child's friend as to be their parent. And you discipline a child, not beat them, discipline, it's different. You discipline because you love them. Well, similarly, the question is posed here, do we care enough about relationships that we have with other Christians to allow discipline to enter into those relationships, or are we just going to let those, those relations be lax and, and flabby and not really ever take the courage that is required to correct faults, or at least try to correct faults where we see them. A live and let live mentality does not promote holy living according to Scripture. It doesn't please God. Now, I'm not suggesting, you know, balance is very important here. I'm not suggesting that we're called to be Busybodies intruding ourselves in every possible way to every detail of another's life, nor are we called to be sharp-tongued critics of others, nor stern judges who condemn other people. But within the body of Christ, we are to have a concern about what we see in the lives of other people, not wagging our finger under their noses, but quietly and appropriately, Humbly speaking, when we see something that we think needs attention, where the Lord might want to call that person to correction, the difficult key is that humility, that gentleness and lack of anger and vindictiveness that so easily can be the spirit in which we would reply to someone. Well, let me begin in the first place, and my first point is the longest, because I want to talk about the who, what, and why of Christian conflict resolution. So there's 3 subpoints under the first point. Asking who and what and why about this, I think we'll spell out what the text says, and then we'll try to, to have some more application about it after that. Who is under consideration here in verse 15? Is this just general advice to the world as a whole? Well, the principle that it espouses is certainly not a bad principle to use in your workplace with nonbelievers if you're able to gently and, and carefully say to someone that they've, you know, committed a major fault. But Jesus isn't talking here about general ethics for the population as a whole. He's talking about ethics for the body of Christ. We know that because he says, if your brother... Now, brother is simply a shorthand word there for a Christian disciple, whether male or female. If someone who with you mutually knows Jesus Christ and is possessed by the Holy Spirit of Christ, or certainly claims that, sins against you, then something needs to happen. So this is a family of God standard of ethics, not necessarily a worldwide standard, even though it might carry over with good advice for the society as a whole. When two individuals dwell in any proximity of relationship to one another, and each one claims the Lordship of Christ and the Holy Spirit of Christ indwelling, there is a unique dynamic in that relationship. And it isn't just the same old, you know, rub shoulders with people who are utter strangers with nothing in common with us that we have in so many places in society. And now Jesus is saying that what is implied here is that a fellow disciple has somehow sinned, and that sin has not been recognized by the person who's done it, not confessed. By the way, the two words against you are not in a few of the older. Manuscripts. It might just say, if a fellow disciple sins, but more of the manuscripts do have the words against you. We think those are authentic words. But even if they weren't there, the principle would be the same. Something has been done that is serious enough, breaking a command of the Lord, an obvious violation, an obvious abuse of some kind, not apparently an accident, and not minor and you were involved. That's the who of this passage. Now, the what. What should you do about it? Well, you're told to go. Uh, That word right there, the little two-letter verb implies get up and take some action. Don't just sit there and stew. Go and reprove your brother face-to-face in private. The word reprove does not mean, you know, an angry attack, uh, you know, a hot letter that accuses the person. In fact, the word to reprove that's here means shed light on his fault, expose his fault to the light of day. The presumption is that perhaps the person doesn't fully understand what they have done, or if they know what they've done, they don't know how badly it has hurt or how much of an injury it has created. And you need to find a way with the guidance and empowerment of God to expose it to the light. Now, we see a good biblical example of this happening in Galatians chapter 2. Paul writes there of an incident where his fellow apostle Peter was wrong, Paul believed, very strongly believed he was wrong in his approach to Gentiles. And he was taking a much more Jewish line and really kind of rejecting Gentiles. And Paul went and basically, in so many words, he says, I got in his face. Now, I think there was love and there was consideration in the way Paul treated Peter, but you get the impression that strong and clear words were spoken. And Peter repented. He listened to his fellow apostle on that occasion and, and was won over to Paul's view. Now, needless to say, this is a transaction that has to avoid that anger that is so easy for us to have. Somebody's hurt you, you're angry, you're upset, you've been wronged, you're, uh, you're just all stirred inside, and you want to go and act out of that emotion, well, attitude is everything in this. We bring alongside this text, I think, Galatians 6 1. That's very key advice for your, what your spirit should be like, where Paul there writes If someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, you imagine yourself to be spiritual? We always do, don't we? Here's the sinner, I'm spiritual, right? You who are spiritual, restore him gently. Don't attack with banners flying and spears out thrust. Restore him gently, watching yourself, lest you also be tempted. In other words, your pride has got to be held in check. Jesus takes it for granted here that you are examining yourself. For after all, if you're spiritual, you're a person who examines yourself and says, perhaps I bore some fault in this. Perhaps I invited this insult or this wrong against me. What did I do here? And don't be so quick to say nothing. Look at it and say, how might I be responsible? If I'm going to look for a speck in my brother's eye, let's make sure the big log isn't hanging out of my eye. And two, while the text doesn't exactly say this, I'll attach to the word go a certain sense of urgency. This is an action that tends to need to be done rather quickly after the offense is realized. The longer we are aware of an offense and sit on it, week by week and month by month, the deeper the trouble tends to Become to ever see it undone or resolved. That's just human nature on both sides. Remember in Matthew 5, 23 and 24, Jesus said that if you're worshiping, if you're in an act of worship and you're you're standing in line to bring your lamb to the priest uh, for sacrifice, and suddenly it occurs to you as you're in a, a posture of worship there in the temple that you have a really badly broken relationship with a brother. Jesus says, I can paraphrase, and I'm saying what he said, get out of line, set your lamb aside, and go take care of that relationship, and then come back and make your sacrifice. For that relationship is even more important than your act of worship. And then he says in in going, and maybe you think I'm reading a lot in the word going, but I'm going to read this into it, and I think experience proves it to be right. Go and talk. I would say to you from pastoral experience that talking of a two-way kind is essential here. Some of us, maybe who are more literate people, like to write letters. So we would write a letter and express our thinking. Well, there's a problem with that. You write the letter, and your letter might have the accusational sense in it, and then the person sits there and stews a little bit about your letter, and he writes one back that's a little stiff. It's much better to go and talk, not email either. You know, the New Testament didn't know email, but email's the same as a letter. I think this is a command that requires conversation. The phone will work but it's probably not quite as good. But there is the importance of speaking so the other person even hears your tone of voice and can react, and you can be back and forth and talk. But then, too, the emphasis of the verse is on privacy, just the two of you. Now, you might think, well, I should rush right in. I've been greatly wronged. I should should bring witnesses. Doesn't this say? No, it says witnesses, are another stage. We'll get there, Lord willing, next week. The first thing is the two of you. After all, stop and think. Your estimate of what was wrong here or what was done might very well be mistaken. There might be something that the other person can offer that you say, oh, well, I didn't understand it that way at all. And if you've already spread this around to a number of people, you've, you've stirred something up that doesn't need to be stirred. And hopefully, it can be settled between the two of you. Well, here's what I'm guessing up to this point. Not too many of you are eager to initiate this. Am I right? Guess what? I'm not either. But I'm speaking here with the force of a command of Jesus Christ behind me. There is a sense of reluctance on our part. Even though we may be angry, even though we may feel we are absolutely right, there's a reluctance to go and make what seems like it will be a confrontation out of it. And you know what? That sense of reluctance is a healthy thing because it probably stops us from going off half-cocked all the time, shooting out in all directions. It makes us really stop and think about what is important enough to undertake such an action as this. But you must not and you cannot let that healthy sense of reluctance stop you every time from acting as it often does. You must act if the Word of God has been violated, if the other person is in some way doing something repetitive, something abusive towards other people, breaking a commandment, openly lying, committing adultery, stealing, some kind of immorality, deliberate deception. There are all kinds of things here, big doctrinal errors. These things have got to be confronted because they're damaging to the person who's doing it, damaging to the people he's doing it to, and damaging to the whole flock of God. Now, we ask why, all right? Who, what, and why would you do this uncomfortable thing? Again, there are a few duties that are harder than this to start. But think of the motive. That's what we mean by why. Why would you do it? Jesus says to win your brother. There's something broken, even if it's as simple as your relationship with this other person. There's a cleavage. There's, there's a break, like a crack in the bone or something, and it needs to be mended. And it may just be that that's all. Maybe it's just the relations between the two of you, but chances are it could even be bigger than that. It could be that this person is doing these kinds of things to other people and nobody's calling him to account. And he's living a life that is developing patterns of turning its back on the Word of God. And having professed to be a believer, he's acting like an unbeliever in many other areas. And nobody is doing anything. Now, it's entirely possible that you'll go to this person and and say, here's the thing. Let's talk about this. And he will say, oh, I was wrong. Well, thank you for caring enough to correct me. That's the ideal response, isn't it? You say, well, that never happens. Oh, yes, it does. I've seen it happen. And I've been the one who has said it when someone came and pointed out something to me. And I thought about it. And I said, I really was wrong there. Thank you. Thank you for being courageous enough to say that. You've helped me. It stings a little bit to say that, but it helped me to make that, in, that admission. God is saying we can be his instruments to work sanctifying grace, to call back somebody whose life is, is bound off in a wrong pattern, having turned their back behaviorally. On the Lord and His Word. All right, well, that's the who and the what and the why. Who, it's for Christians. What? Go and do it quickly, just between the two of you. Why? To win your brother. Now, let's go on with it a little bit and apply it some more. Because, again, I want to emphasize to you that verse 15 of Matthew 18 is quite possibly not just the most important command in human relations, I know It is the least obeyed of all the commands of Jesus. I know it. I would stake anything on that. That this is the most commonly disobeyed injunction of Jesus Christ in terms of how believers are to live their lives. I say that from long observation of friends and Christians of all stripes, not just this congregation, many congregations, pastors, elders, everybody else. Runs from doing this. Christians who are so mature, they really ought to know better, have a hard time doing this. Let me just name for you some of the avoidance strategies people do adopt instead of doing this simple thing. There's a number of them. One, they talk to everybody else about the problem, right? You don't talk to the person, you find your five best friends and say, Do you know what the pastor said? Do you know what she did last week? Hey, are we immune to gossip? The world loves to gossip. Christians don't necessarily love it any better than anybody else, but we haven't lost the love of it just because Christ is in our hearts. Can you honestly claim when you think about being at odds with another person that you haven't done that, gone and talked about it to several other people, if not many other people before you talk to the individual. John Calvin says in his commentary on this passage, quote, the greater part of men are driven by ambition to publish with excessive eagerness the faults of their brethren. You talk about it to everybody else instead of the person. Second avoidance tactic, very common, the cold shoulder, right? Somebody's hurt me. Somebody sinned against me. I'm never going to talk to them again. Well, maybe I didn't come right out and say that, but I just make sure I don't talk to them again. I just make sure that when they're in a group with a conversation going on, I edge away from that group. But don't you see how this never heals anything? And in fact, it only makes it worse. It compounds the emotional distance when you avoid the person. Thirdly, And here's a common one. We say this in our minds. We wait, we do nothing, and we say to ourselves, well, he sinned against me, so it's up to him to make the first move and apologize, right? Not according to Jesus. Did you read verse 15? Did you hear who it's addressed to? If you have been sinned against, the obligation is on you. I say, that just isn't fair. Well, Jesus is saying you're the one that's most aware of the fault. It may well be that this other person, in fact, in, in quite an innocent way, is not aware how he has trampled on you. Maybe he has patterns of life that, that just let him do these things and without really understanding that he stepped all over your feet or harmed you. It's quite possible. And if you're aware of the offense, Jesus says the initiative belongs yes it would be great if offenders and and of course if you are an offender and you know you did something wrong you should go. But that's not the situation Jesus is addressing. He's addressing the person who says I've been I've had it committed against me. You go. That's who this is talking to. Fourthly, another avoidance tactic. This is very common is to call the pastor or call some other spiritual leader and say, here's what happened. Now, will you go straighten that person out? I get these calls. I really do, and it's not totally a laughing matter at all. I must tell you, we pastors at Westminster have talked about this more than once, and we have a firm practice in this regard. We will say to you gently but firmly, Let me read Matthew 18, 15 to you. You have an obligation to do something here. If you have already done that and have been refused, then you need someone to go with you, and I will be happy to be that person. But I will not short-circuit what the Scripture puts on you to do first. And some of you even get unhappy with your pastors when we tell you that but I think the command of Christ is pretty plain. And a fifth avoidance strategy and the last, and maybe the certainly the saddest of all. What do you do if you've been sinned against? Somebody's talked about you. Somebody seems to have wronged you. Oh, let's see. I've used the cold shoulder. I asked the pastor. He wouldn't do it. I've waited for him to come, and he didn't come. I'm leaving the church. Goodbye, church. Goodbye, Fellowship. I can't dwell in this fellowship with this wrong against me. I can't do it. I've seen heart-rending examples of this all across three decades of ministry. Just absolutely tragic. I've had people who think I'm the offender. I haven't known what the offense was. I find out much, much later. But a cold attitude sort of develops, and I'm a little bit aware that that person is acting differently towards me and avoiding me. And two years later, they're gone. Uh, we've gone to another church. Goodbye, if they even bother to say that. And when we investigate, oh, well, let me tell you what you did two years ago. Oh, really? Well, that was based on a pretty simple misunderstanding. We could have straightened it out quite easily if we had known and sat down and talked and. But now that tiny little cut that went untreated for two or three or five years has got infection in it, and resentment has built up, and anger has built up. And finally, the person walks away. In the cafeteria-style church-hopping that some people do today, there's tragic, unfinished business that often, not always, of course, there there are right reasons to leave a church. This isn't the only reason, but when people leave for this reason, Unfinished business remains behind them that is dishonoring to God. Do you see why I compare this one little verse of Jesus to a wonder cure that seems to lay on the shelf and nobody even bothers to use it? We know about it, but we say it's too hard. I can't do it. Sorry. I'm not that kind of a person. And it's not that the cure doesn't work, but it usually isn't tried. And I don't think Jesus would even be saying to us that it's going to work every time, and we're going to see a satisfactory result every single time. If, if he thought that, he wouldn't have given us the further steps when we're refused. He knew we'd be refused sometimes, but we won't even take that first step. And that's why this is the least obeyed of all the commands of Jesus Christ. Well, in closing this morning, just a couple of practical exhortations about this. It's a rigorous command, ladies and gentlemen. But it is a disciple's command. If your brother sins against you, go, show him his fault, expose it. Just between the two of you, if he listens to you, you have won your brother. Now, I know some people are saying this to themselves. Here's what you're saying to yourself. You didn't think I was a mind reader, but I am. You're saying to yourself, I just am not a confrontational person. I hate confrontation. I can't possibly do this. Well, let me tell you, if being a pastor requires a confrontational personality, I'd better quit the ministry because I am not a confrontational person. I hate confrontation. I will do many things to avoid confrontation, but I've learned that the calling I have requires it sometimes. We cannot simply conclude this that this is only for the argumentative person, the person who loves a debate, the person who likes to get in somebody's face, you know. And there are people who do like that. But we also need to realize that even calling this a confrontation may be a misunderstanding. Jesus isn't calling us here to relational combat. He's not calling us to take our wounded and harsh spirit and anger in our voice and go and say, you ugly sinner, get it, get yourself straightened out? Of course not. I wonder if you could say to somebody something like this, John, something happened yesterday that involved you and involved me, and it, it bothered me a lot. Maybe you didn't realize it. I really hope that that's the case. And If you and I could just talk about it, I might find out that I totally misunderstood you, but this thing won't rest with me. And and since we're both members of the same body of Christ, could we get together soon and see if we could understand each other better? You see, you've conceded to the person that you might be wrong, and that's a real possibility. And you've said, let's talk, not let's duke it out. And you can find your own words for that, but it is possible to do this. John MacArthur is a wise pastor as well as a wise Bible commentator. Here's what he said. I really was taken with this. He said, God does not mock his children by demanding of them anything that he does not intend to enable them to do by his power. No Christian, therefore, says MacArthur, has an excuse for not initiating Matthew 18.15 because God will provide the necessary wisdom, insight, gentleness, and boldness when a sincere, prayerful desire for these is present. Amen. He will. I was driving behind a car just a few weeks ago. Uh, there were actually a couple things on the back of this car that is one of those cars that kind of gives you the impression stay stay back and the particular bumper sticker said i don't get mad i get even that's the way a lot of people live their lives can we in the body of christ afford to have that be our credo i don't get mad i get even we truly need other Christians, ladies and gentlemen, and they need us. The Robinson Crusoe style of Christianity is usually a failure. The conflict resolution strategy Jesus gave in Matthew 18, 15 is not about judging people. It's not about condemning them. It's not about jumping all over them. It's about caring for them, so much so that you want nothing to stand between the two of you that is not of God. I don't think any of us have an exemption here. Personality type is not an exemption. We cannot neglect obedience to this command of our Lord. If you think you're exempt, you're in danger. You really are. I need to warn you. And if you think you're exempt, it may even be because you have some real homework that needs to be done and initiated with somebody. And you're avoiding it, and that becomes your sin against the other person. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers who know that they are the objects of God's grace and mercy and therefore see that they need to breathe that grace and mercy into other lives. Begin by asking God for His ability to let you be a reconciler and to do it with courage, gentleness, humility, and wisdom that is born out of God's own forgiving grace that He's showered on us in Jesus Christ. He will do it. Let us pray. Father, the greatness of Your Son is that Such tremendous things were said in the space of two sentences. This one verse would deal with so much in our lives that we're just afraid to do, and we fall back on our old human condition and compound the sin that someone else may have done by our own cowardice. I pray, Father, that you would compel us where it is necessary to think about what we need to do, what, what may already have remained undone too long. Give us your courage and your words and your grace. And be honored in what we do for Jesus' sake. Amen.